I'm just going to maybe share a story from this week, uh, and that'll kind of set up why we're in Psalm 27 uh, today. So we're kind of doing a one, just a one-off sermon. Um, next week is our anniversary service, and then we've got a wonderful guest speaker. I think I've mentioned uh, before, Peter Harris from the UK is going to be here as a guest, and then we're actually going to launch, beginning in November, into a series called The Table, and it's a look at the nine times in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is, uh, that we see Jesus at a meal situation. Uh, so at a table, at a meal, with uh, radically different crowds, um, Pharisees, families, disciples, and what those kind of interactions around the table convey. It's a sermon series that Pete Kelly suggested, and so I'm kind of excited um, to be able to tag team that with him starting in November. So a lot to look forward to that way. But I had one Sunday today to kind of just talk on whatever I wanted to talk about, uh, and I decided to talk on Psalm 27. And the reason is this, um, I can't seem to catch up in life. Um, I don't know if anyone else feels like that, but I work and work and work and work. And I'm used to that if I just put my head down uh, long enough or suck it in kind of through the weekend or two weekends in a row or whatever, that I'll, I'll catch up. And I just can't seem to catch up. And it's just kind of been this all-consuming thing with whether it's just action items and getting organized or whether it's just the stress of trying to um, deal with high-level leadership things and budgets and stuff like that. I just can't seem to get out from underneath it. And then this Wednesday, I had a, uh, an interesting experience. It was kind of like this weird wake-up call for me. So I'm driving in to work, and I have a, an old uh, Ford Explorer, and it has an aftermarket radio but it's like six years old, um, and, and it's just a radio. Like, so I don't have satellite radio. I don't have like a six-disc change. I don't have anything like that work, and I just have my radio. And there's one thing I can't stand in this world, and it's um, commercials. Like, it literally commercials on the radio are worse than TV. TV, at least they have pictures, Right? But radio, they, they try and do everything with their voice or with sounds and inflections, and, and they, they just become extra aggravating or annoying. Um, and, and then if you're listening to the Christian radio stations, they're always talking about money, which is partly why I have this whole issue of never, I hate talking about money, because I know how I feel when I listen to Christian radio, and I'm like, I don't ever want to be in that, that circle, right? But so it's, it's just, I can't stand the aggravation of um, commercials. So I'm driving Wednesday to work, and it's just, you know, if you hit it right, you just get one after another after another, and you can just flip through all the Central Oregon radio stations, you know, and, it's, and it, you're just hitting all of the, the commercials. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So this is me Wednesday, and I just flipped Inside, I didn't like yell or anything like that, but in my mind, I just was so aggravated. I just kind of flipped. And what came out was, I'm going to go buy a new car. <laughs> and I, my, I started thinking down that road. It was, um, I'm not going to ask Tamara. I'm going to go today and I'm going to get a new car and it's going to have a radio that I can sign up for satellite radio. And... <laughs> 
I will never have to listen to a commercial again. And I, I started thinking, like, I can totally do this. Um, I'll just lease it. No, I didn't really think that. Um, I, right about then, actually, is when I started re reflecting maybe a little bit deeper. Um, but I, I, I kind of knew which side of town I was going to drive to. Like, all those thoughts come really fast. You know what I'm talking about? Like, when you begin to say, I'm just going to dog on it. I'm going to do something. Um, and then I, I kind of stepped back a little bit in my mind, and I was like, wow, this is strange. Like, you haven't thought about buying a car ever. Um, what's going on? And, and, then I, and then it occurred to me that not only have I not thought about buying a car and all of a sudden I'm thinking like, I'm just going to go buy a car and not tell Tamara. Um, I realized that the provocation for that was, was the car stereo, which is, which is a, a lot different than a whole car. Like my car is just fine. It works just fine. And a radio is a lot cheaper than a car. And so I, I, I kind of was like, so where did that come from? Like, I mean, it came from somewhere, right? Like, it, so it, it came from in my heart, you know? Like, out of the heart of, of a man is, or, or woman, out, out of our heart is where everything kind of leaks up that we stuff down. And, um, and then it occurred to me, I'm having a midlife crisis, this is classic, classic midlife crisis behavior. Um, I could have just as easily have been uh, going to buy a dog. You know, I mean, the other classic midlife purchase where, where you don't tell your wife, you just show up with an animal. Um, and I, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't see that coming, um, a little Wednesday morning midlife crisis episode. Um, but, I, but that's where I was. And I, uh, and I thought, wow, it's really interesting how um, the challenges of life, um, from acute to just ongoing, regular, um, droning on challenge, um, they, they can wear us down, they can strike us down very quickly, and they can also wear us down. And I think that we we can be too idealistic in church too often and always talk about the hope as in, as in just around the corner, it's all going to get better. Just around the corner, the pain is going to go away. Just around the corner, you're not going to have to be afraid anymore. Just around the corner, it's always going to be fixed. And, and we find that that corner is pretty hard to get around, isn't it? Um. And just when you, you solve the business thing, there's something that happens in family. Or just when you solve the family thing, there's something that happens with health. Um, or just when you solve kind of all of the fires out there, one of your closest friends becomes an enemy and you, and you think, how did that happen? And, and how painful that is. And how alone it makes us feel. Or just, or just, or just. And... The interesting thing about the Psalms for me, which is really the prayer book of the Bible, is that the Psalms, or uh, they're they're radically hope-filled, but their voice, the tone, the, the language um, that we see in the Psalms, is almost always from in the pit, and it and it takes the pit, it takes. It takes that hole that we can always find ourselves in. It takes that as just a given part of life. 
And then out of that pit, it cries to God. And out of that pit, it looks for answers. And out of that pit, it reaffirms faith in God who in the end won't let us go um, and will rescue us. And I think there's something important about that that we need to remind ourselves with, that we need to have as part of our conversations as a church, that the language of the Psalms if we're not going to drive ourselves crazy, needs to also be the language um, of us. Do you know what I mean by that? Like if we find a different kind of language, a triumphalistic kind of language, a, a just around the corner kind of language that's very, very different than the Psalms, I think we're going to find ourselves a little off center from where the scriptures are. And in that, we're going to find a very frustrating engagement with God a very transactional engagement with God, a very idealistic engagement with God, and a very um, challenging conversation or relationship with God. And so I think we have to remember the language of the Psalms and we have to sit in the Psalms. And so Psalm 27, we're going to move through it pretty quick today, start to finish. Um, There should be verses that show up on the screen periodically as we're going through it. You can read along in your Bible. You can feel free Um, to look at the screen, but Psalm 27. Uh, It's one of my favorite psalms. I love the beauty of the language, but it just begins this way, and it's a psalm of David. And it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? A lot of people um, try and figure out when David wrote different psalms that he writes in in uh, the book of Psalms, whether it was early on in his life when he's a shepherd boy uh, and he kind of pulled it out of his journals later for the song, song book of Israel, or whether it's one of these things that he penned when he was running from Saul and afraid, uh, afraid for his life and hiding in caves and what that must have felt like, or if it was something later in life when he was dealing with the challenges of, of his family kind of tearing themselves apart and dealing with the rebellion of his son Absalom, um, But it's interesting to try and locate where David's psalms come from. This particular psalm, many believe that it was either uh, early on in his life uh, while he was running from uh, King Saul, um, but kind of in Jewish literature, it's, it's viewed to be much later. And about the time that he went out to battle and was almost killed, and at that point in time in the book of Samuel, they say to David, no more going out with us. Um, you're too old. You don't move like you used to. Um, and we're not going to let you be killed on the battlefield. Second Samuel reads this way, Second Samuel 21, verse 17. But Abishai, son of Zariah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will, uh, will we let you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be ex- extinguished so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. It's interesting to note that David, certainly in this verse, uh, and in the view of his uh, fellow Israelites, was considered to be the light of Israel, the hope of Israel. He's the king. He's the one that they all look to. He's the one that they all key off of. So he's the lamp or the light of Israel. And as David's writing this psalm, again, whether before or during this period of time, and saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation, 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. He's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That he's really doing something interesting that we see David do all throughout the Psalms is that he takes what would be the glory things of himself. He takes his position or his strength and we see him quickly pivot and turn that into his submission underneath the Lord. Psalm 23, a couple Psalms earlier, is beautiful this way. Um, The Lord is my shepherd. Well, David was the shepherd of Israel. And he quickly said, the Lord is my shepherd. And so you get this interesting thing where, where David is a shepherd who sees himself first and foremost as a sheep. Here we see the same thing where David is a light. He's the hope. He's the salvation of Israel who first and foremost sees himself um, underneath the true light, the true hope, the true salvation of Israel. And we see that David's understanding that way is how he frames many of his psalms. He frames them with a declaration of the bigness and the majesty and the beauty of God. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. This word for stronghold, uh, in, in many translations, it's strength, but stronghold, it's, it's really the Hebrew here is a bulwark or a refuge. It's, it's this sense of, of really being uh, maybe in a castle or behind a strong wall and, and gaining your strength by that position um, by being attached to that thing. There's this real sense of gaining strength and being secure because of it. Verse two, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Interesting point here is that it's not that David will make them stumble and fall. It's that they will stumble and fall. As they come against me because God is my, my, my hope, because God is my salvation, because God is my refuge, because of God in my life, these people that advance against me, they will stumble and fall. It's not about my strength. It's not about what I'm able to do when people advance against me. It's trusting that as they come at me, little by little, God will chip it down and protect me, that they won't ultimately be able to get to me. And it's a, it's a very hard thing to do when you, when you think of life's stresses and that you can see them coming at you and to trust that somehow, some way, before they get to you, they're going to be cut down. Um, one of the greatest theological movies of all time, The Last of the Mohicans, um, you remember that wonderful scene where on the fort, uh, they were with the fort and the, the leader of the British troops was breaking word and saying that, that these kind of volunteers, the militia, were not able, on pain of, of death, were not able to leave the fort. Um, and so one guy is going to escape and go back and try and um, protect the women and the children that are, are being attacked. And um, so they get on the roof of this fort, kind of on the, the top, the embattlement area. And um, man, I just dropped his name. Daniel Day-Lewis. So Daniel Day-Lewis has got this long rifle and, and he, kind of, he kind of sets his sights. They're all loading rifles for him and he's shooting one at a time as this guy's running. And it's one of the craziest, most dramatic scenes because the guy that's running is literally about to be hijacked at every tree as he's going and trying to escape. And right when, when people are about to get him, they fall one at a time. He's trusting that behind him, 
Um, he has a strength and a hope that will take and cut down the things, the enemies, um, before they're able to harm him. And to me, that's this picture of the tension of faith that somehow as we're moving forward in life and we see things coming at us, that we, we wince and, and we're, we're afraid, but believing that somehow God is going to cut those things down for us before they can get to us. Verse 3. Uh, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Um, what's the scariest thing in the world, especially uh, in this time period, when if you were taken captive or if, if an army beat you, uh, especially if you're a king, you were probably killed on the spot, uh, or your whole family is put to death while you're watching and then you're killed, but so that your whole lineage would pass. I mean, so if you're a king and a big army comes against you, it's a pretty scary thing. If you're a protester in Hong Kong and you feel like the might of, of China is, is against you and you don't have much recourse to try and fight for freedoms, like that sense of a big, ominous, stronger entity weighing against you and that you, you really, at the end of the day, are powerless to it and it's going to take your life from you or what you hold dearest from you. That's like your worst nightmare. It's your worst nightmare. Um, Kip and I were talking about worst nightmares. And, and sometimes I forget that not everybody in this church knows Kip. Um, Kip was the second uh, and third... Uh, he wasn't the second and third. Kip and Kim, his sister, um, were kind of the first outside of my family to join Antioch and then Fred and Melanie Kent. And so these people, there's some very dear people that have been a part of uh, Antioch or this movement of a, of a church here from, from way back when. And Kip was 22 at the time, managing two stores in town. He's always been an overachiever. And his sister taught us very early on that um, life is better when, when you tease Kip. And so the first couple of years, the, the announcements, Guy Gleason, um, who uh, can get away with it because he is older, um, it was a stand-up comedy routine um, about Kip. And Kip believed, uh, or still believes, that life is better when he's teased as well. Um, it's, it's all for fun. Um, but we had to stop teasing Kip because people that would come to the church thought it, it felt really mean. And I'm still processing. I'm just kidding. Um, but, but this isn't teasing Kip. Um, this is Kip's story, and he said I could share it. So I just want to give you that background. But we were talking about nightmares. My nightmare is, is that if I wake up in cold sweats um, on a monthly basis, it's that I'm failing out of college. And it is a scary, scary, panic-filled nightmare. And it happens a bunch of different ways, but it's always I'm failing out of college. And that's, there's, a, there's a lot of psychological reasons why that's my worst nightmare um, and how that got ingrained in me. But that's like, I, I went through such crazy experiences in college that that's what's just tattooed on my soul. And it comes out as my worst nightmare. Kip's worst nightmare, um, if you don't know, Kip is, uh, he does IT at Antioch. He, he has a tattoo, I, I believe. I've never actually seen it, but I believe somewhere on his body he has an apple tattoo. Um, haven't seen it, 
but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's there somewhere. Uh, and, and he is incredibly good with computers and absolutely loves Apple. He, he sets his clock and at work always watches every keynote. When they come out with the keynotes, like uh, during the day, watches them as they're happening live. And came over to help Tamara with her computer this weekend. And so Tamara and I were standing there as he's kind of fixing Tamara's computer. And he got so excited that he said, listen, computers are beautiful things, but they need to be loved. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to write that phrase down. Like, that's just a classic um, phrase. But so Kip, uh, when we were talking about nightmares, said that he has a nightmare that's a recurring nightmare, honest, an honest one, not just a, for a joke, but he has an honest recurring nightmare. Wake up, cold sweats, monthly basis, kind of like my, my college one. And his recurring nightmare is that he's dropped his iPhone in water. And he, and, he, and he panics and wakes up and that this is a recurring thing. Um, and, and to try to analyze what must be going on inside of him, that that would be the greatest fear, the biggest nightmare, um, is, is, is a fun thing for me to analyze. But so what we get here in, in verse 3 is just simply this. Um, Though your iPhone may fall in water, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then will I be confident. There's something about we all have a nightmare. We all have something that wakes us up at night. We all have something that will keep us from sleeping at night. And that somehow our confidence is going to be found in God. And it's like this brings up a tension. Does that mean God's going to always fix everything? Does that, I mean, is my confidence that God will always get it, will always will always resolve my issues. And the next verse is pretty telling. It says this, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Let me read it again. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Excuse me. And what we find here is that ultimately the promise is that we get to be with God. Ultimately the promise, the biggest promise here is that we get to find God and that when we're with God, somehow, that's the minimum. Everything else might be crazy, but we can be in his house, in his temple, and find strength there. And that's kind of the minimum of what we're promised in life. I was at a conference a week ago and a very powerful message about the fires that we go through. And towards the end of this message, my friend Gabriel Salguero from New York, uh, head of the National uh, Evangelical Latino Association. Um, I mean, he was absolutely preaching about God saving you from the fire. And then he pivots at the end and says this, either God will save you from the fire or he'll be with you in the fire. But no matter what, the fire you're going through in life, the one thing you can count on is that God is there. And I think we, we stop at that first one most of the time. God's gonna save me from the fire. And God sometimes does. He doesn't always. 
But even if he doesn't, somehow, some way, the faith of the Hebrew prophets, the faith that we see of David here in the Psalms is this confidence that even if we're going through the fire, that we've been promised the presence of God and that God will be with us in the fire. Kind of like um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being, being thrown into a fire and that somehow God goes into the fire with us. Um, one of the most meaningful verses in Psalms for me, if you want to turn to Psalm 142. I can't tell you how many times I, I cried this psalm when my life was confusing or when I felt lost. There's a summer before I met Tamara where this was my daily routine to read Psalm 142. And one, uh, Psalm 142, it's this particular phrase that gets me, but I'm going to read it from from verse one down through, through uh, verse five. But it says this, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. This, that summer, by the way, was the first time in my life that the Psalms really came alive for me. I don't know if anyone else has ever had this experience with the Psalms, but when you hang around church long enough, you begin to hear of your grandmother or someone else um, in church that has this favorite psalm, like their favorite psalm. It's like everyone has a favorite psalm. And you kind of read the psalms, at least I did early on in my faith, and, and I didn't get it. Like I didn't, I didn't get it. There wasn't a magic for me. And it wasn't until life, my life experience was, was so confusing and painful in different ways. And I felt so alone that when I started reading the psalms, I realized that there was a solidarity, that there was something about the voice of the Psalms that matched my voice, it matched my cry. My first person felt experience found itself reflected in, in what the psalmist is saying and what the psalmist was singing. And then, it, and then the magic kind of came along. Then the beauty was there for me. And it was this one in particular that felt just like it, it said the words for me. I cry aloud to the Lord. As I'm sitting there on a couch in Whittier, I'm, I'm lifting my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint. It's not fair. Life isn't fair. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. And when my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge no one cares for my life. When it's dark, the first thing that you lose sight of is the, is, is, is the thought that anyone else is around you. There's something interesting about li uh, lying awake in bed at night and, and rolling through the stresses in your life. You never feel so alone as you do in, in, at two in the morning. I don't know about you, but that's true for me. I never feel so alone in my troubles as I do at two in the morning. No one else is there with me. Nobody gets it. Nobody's lifting a finger. Nobody cares. Like that's the way it feels. Sometimes more true than others. But David is saying this. Look to my right and see. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. The particular issues I was dealing with at that point in my life were issues with church. And the leadership in my church, leaders who are over me and feeling like they're not even listening. 
Like they're not, they're not even hearing me, what my intentions are, my motives, why certain things are the way they are. And they're not caring about that at all. Like in their leadership for me, they're just making decisions, but not really understanding what's going on in my life or what that feels like to me. And I felt all alone. And then this next verse became my heart cry. I cry to you, O Lord, and I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. I cry to you, O Lord, and I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. There's some deep theology right there. I mean, do you see it? When we're stripped down to just the most guttural voice, the most desperate voice, the voice that says, I'll take anything if you'll just let me hold on. What that voice ultimately understands is that um, there's one thing I can be sure of. And that it's, um, that God is gonna be my portion in the land of the living. Just, if I can just have you, God, if I just know that you're with me at two in the morning, if I just know that you're with me through this pain, if I just know that in this thing that has rocked me to my core and I'm completely undone, I'm not even the same person that I once was, that in this somehow, even if, even if our conversation is like trying to talk to somebody sitting next to me on an airplane that doesn't speak English, even if that's how our prayer life has become where it, it, it's very difficult and there's not a lot of content, if I know you're sitting there next to me, if that's all I get in this world, that's enough. I'll start there. I'll begin there. I'll find my center there. I'll find confidence there. And that's what's gonna be um, the source of my hope moving forward. But in the middle of nightmares, in the middle of the scariest things, in the middle of the most difficult things and the things that wear us down, can we really cry out to God, not God solve my problems, but God, I want you. I need to know that you're here with me through this trial. I was talking to a group recently and I, I, I love when I get to talk to other groups because I can use all my best stuff and, and they don't know it. And it's frustrating talking to you all because you guys know all my stuff and you also know that I'm not all that. I can pretend with, with groups that don't know me. Um, I can pretend. <laughs> uh, but that, that, that doesn't work here. Um, but I like to talk about when I'm with other groups this insight that I think you guys have heard a million times, but it, it always impresses itself on me when I think about it. And that's that God's faithfulness and his trustworthiness is a second order. Those are second order characteristics. When we put our faith in something, we find out that it's faithful. When we trust something, we find out, we, we actually truly find out at that point in time that it's trustworthy. Before putting our faith in it, before putting our trust in it, it's just a concept. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just an ideal but it's our faith that allows God to demonstrate his faithfulness, our trust that allows him to demonstrate his trustworthiness. And so what I, say, uh, what I said to this group a week ago was, we pray that God would remove the trials before we've trusted 
that God is with us in those trials. In other words, when we pray, we give God the things to fix before we've actually believed or trusted that he's gonna resolve or take care of us. So we pray for his faithfulness to come before our faith. We pray that God will be trustworthy before we have to bear that awkward weight of trust, that awkward tension of, of living or walking by faith. Does that make sense? Our prayer life is oftentimes, God, remove the thing that causes me um, to need to have faith. Which, when we really look at it that way, is a bit strange, isn't it? And that's not the way life is. We actually have to walk by faith. We actually have to, to suffer the tension, the anxiety. And in the midst of that, find a way to cry aloud to God and say, God, first and foremost, will you be my portion in the land of the living? While I'm alive, while I'm here, while I'm breathing, I just want to know that you're going to be my portion, that I can at least count on that. And as it says in Psalm 127, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life while I have breath to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Down to verse six, it says this, then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his tabernacles while I sacrifice with, with shouts of joy and I will sing and make music to the Lord. If God is my God, somehow if I have that, I will be exalted over the people that don't believe in my God or don't believe that my God is mighty. And I will find myself at that, that appointed place where I'm giving sacrifices to the Lord. In other words, thanksgiving offerings saying, thank you God for being with me, for being my God, for being um, strong, for being faithful, for being trustworthy. And that was shouts of joy, which is always what happened when they would come to the temple. The Psalms, many of them, were written for the Israelites to sing as they're going to the temple. And when they come in, they play the music and they sing and there's shouts because they're celebrating that God is very big. I think one of the reasons in the last 30 years that most worship songs have become about petition. God, do this for me. God, I want this. God, I need this. Is that we've really gotten um, absorbed with just that desire part. God, come down and fix my life. And I think what's amazing about a lot of the old hymns is they start with declarations about God and his glory and his, his size and his majesty and his faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. It doesn't start with, God, I need you to be faithful. Boy, I need it bad. I need it, I need it bad. I don't know how songs go. And then the bridge. <laughs> if only, if only, if only you'd be faithful. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the hymns were like radically theological because it starts with a vision of God. And that's what we see here, this idea that I'm gonna come into your presence, God. And if I know that I can be in your presence, if I can come into that tabernacle, I'll do my sacrifices with shouts of joy and I'll sing and make music to the Lord. So even if I'm afraid of my worst nightmare, can I still come into the house of the Lord and sing praises to God? The church that does the Justice Conference in Hong Kong is right in the epicenter of the protest marches down there, uh, the Wan Chai district of Hong Kong. 
And they've kept their doors open 24-7 for people to spend the night and to sleep. Um, and they're working with people and trying to counsel and encourage people and comfort them. And I just thought, what is, what is that to be able to open your doors to people that are that afraid of their future? And to bring them in and to provide that place of refuge and to say, while we're doing this, we need to be singing Singing is the only thing, it's the only logical thing we can do in the midst of all this uncertainty is to sing praises to God. Um, to start with God. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. In your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. There's a forgiveness aspect to that, saying, please don't turn away from me. Please don't. Um, I, I've cried aloud that I'd find you. Please, God, don't, don't turn away from me. And there's this penitent state here that says, forgive me. And that's why you get in the New Testament when Jesus goes to all these Pharisees and he says, listen, forgiveness is such a big deal. Don't you want to be forgiven by God? Don't you want to be accepted by God? Don't you want God to find you and to not turn his face away? So forgive others. Forgive because as you forgive is how it's going to be done unto you, how forgiveness is going to come to you. And that's why it's such this hallmark of the New Testament is this logical thing of forgive that God may forgive you. And though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Um... Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a mother forget her baby and have no compassion on the child she has born? Question mark. And here's this fascinating thing. Though she may forget, I will not forget you, says God. It is remarkable that God has set himself up as greater than the bonds of family love. I mean, please understand the power of that that God is somehow to be more important or we're supposed to find him closer than the bonds of family love, the love of mother for child or father for son or daughter or husband for wife. And so Jesus picks up on this theme later and he says, listen, unless you hate these things, and he certainly didn't mean hate, what he simply meant was these have to be smaller than God. If these things are bigger than God, then they've become idols and so this is a theme we see in Scripture in David. Long before Jesus, you can see David here saying, listen, though my father and my mother forsake me, I understand that the Lord will receive me. And then there's this interesting question, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Here's the interesting thing with the sermon, standing here week after week. I feel like I always have to resolve the tension. Wow, that's a big claim you just made. Like, families can become idols. God's got to somehow be bigger than that. Now explain it. I'm like, I don't want to have to. And what I love about Scripture is it doesn't always explain it. The next verse here is, God, you're, you're, you're this big, you're this close, so teach me. Teach me your way. 
Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Like, I don't know how to understand all this or to to live it out, but somehow, God, you've got to educate me. You've got to grow my knowledge, my wisdom, my discernment, because all of this is pretty hard sometimes to grapple with or to apply. So I know that you're big. I know that you come first. Now teach me. One of the big fears I have today is, is in the overwhelming amount of information that we have, we're valuing education less and less. And education is not just information. Education is packaging information in such a way that makes you smart um, or able to instruct or able to discern or able to choose. And with the increase in information, I think there needs to be a corresponding increase in education. Yet somehow we're losing our our true love of or value of education. And I think we need to go back to this and say, at all times, education is a part of the life of the believer. It's not just compulsory education. The life of a believer is one where we continually cry aloud to God and say, in the midst of all of these tensions or the confusion, I, I need you to instruct me. I need you to teach me. Do not turn... Do not turn me, verse uh, 12, do not turn me over to the desire of my foes for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. And I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That last passage there to me, I think is one of the hardest things I've found in my life recently. Um, Don't go buy a new car. Don't, co- uh, don't come home with a dog. I would have done that, but I actually looked into it and my CCNRs don't allow me to have another dog. Um, but wait for the Lord. Second Kings, please turn there because this is an important passage. Second Kings chapter five. You have the commander of the, the army of the king of Aram. So this is an army outside of Israel and you've got this guy Naaman. So 2 Kings chapter 5. And now Naaman's a really tough guy. Um, He's a soldier. He's valiant, but he has leprosy. And so he goes to the king, and there's a young girl from Israel there, a captive, a slave. And she says, you should go to Israel because there's there's a God in Israel that can maybe heal you. So the, the, the word goes out to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel is like, man, this is a trick. This, this powerful king is going to send this guy here. I'm not going to be able to heal him. And then he's going to have a pretext for war. And they're going to come wage war. This is a, this is a dirty trick. Um, and what happens is Elijah now here, I'm sorry, Elisha hears this. And he says, send for him. Tell him to come. Uh, and he'll find out that there is a prophet in the house of Israel. So now Naaman comes with a bunch of uh, his entourage uh, and he goes um, to seek out Elisha. And when Elisha, the man of the Lord, this is verse eight, when Elisha, the man of the Lord, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Verse nine. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, so he didn't even go to him himself. He sent a messenger. And the messenger says, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry 
And he said, I thought that you would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord your God so that you would have come out yourself and shown me the respect that I deserve as the captain uh, of the army of this powerful king. I'm somebody important. I would have thought for sure you would have come out and then called to God and you would have waved your hand over the spot and cured me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, uh, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, which is in Syria, better than any of the waters of Israel? So in Israel, you got from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. It's a part of the great rift, this great crack in the earth's crust that you see going all the way from like Kenya, the Rift Valley, up around and in that Jordan Valley. And that's why you get some of the deepest uh, places below sea level in that area of Israel uh, by the Dead Sea. And so the waters come starting from Sea of Galilee down uh, and that's the Jordan River to the Dead Sea. And it's, it's a, a certainly... Uh, in the off times of the year, it's only two to 10 feet deep. It can be full of silt. It's, it's not considered a clean river like you would have up in Damascus with your typical rivers not flowing in this great rift down to the Dead Sea. So it's not considered a clean river. It's a foreign river and it's not considered clean. And so he says, uh, surely you should have come out and taken care of me, showed me honor, and then are not my rivers cleaner than your rivers? And so he turned away and went off in a rage. So Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? And so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Here's the closing thought. This idea of waiting on the Lord, that's my Jordan River. I'm a very American, I'm very type A, I'm very fixer oriented, I'm very now oriented, I'm very, I'm, I'm very much a doer. And I think if God told me to do some great thing right now, I almost think I would love it. I'd love to stand up here and tell you I have a word from the Lord and we are going to go change the world. We, we, we got this great task that God has set before us and it would energize me and it would, it would give me kind of something to focus on and, and little stresses would disappear and, and I, I'd be on the hunt. No matter how difficult, no matter how big, I think if God asked something big of me, I think it'd be really easy. But when God says, go wash in dirty water, I somehow have to find the logic of washing in that dirty water that doesn't make sense to me in the way I perceive my life, but somehow it makes sense in God's economy that it's not this that's gonna give me meaning or fix me or be my hope or my light or my salvation because dirty water doesn't make me clean. So washing in dirty water is forcing me to recognize that God is gonna be my light and my hope and my salvation that really at the end of the day, what I just need is the presence of God that, that I could somehow know he's gonna be my portion in the land of the living. And there's a spiritual logic to washing in dirty water. And when I hear the words wait, suffer, endure. Those words are true words. And they say to me, go wash in the Jordan River. 
And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I know my stresses. Um, and I know that God is faithful. But sometimes that's not always going to save us from having to walk a road of faith. To walk a road of trust. To walk a road where we're banking on him spiritually to be our refuge. Not that he's always going to fix things the way we want to see him fixed or the way we think we need them fixed. And so I stand before you today just saying, um, for me, it's a bath in dirty water. It's somehow learning to rejoice in this idea that the presence of God will be uh, with me in the trials and in the fire. That, that it's not just that the presence of God will take away the fire or the trial. So let me pray for us this morning and then the team is going to come up and sing the offertory. Um, but Father, we are weak and we live in a culture that doesn't value weakness and we're taught to hide it. We're taught to not be honest with it, with friends or families uh, or friends. And I think what's worse is we're also taught to very quickly say that it's not fair. I compare too much. I feel entitled to too much. My center line is, is, is not where it should be. And I pray this morning, I cry out to you along with the psalmist that you would be my portion in the land of the living, my hope, my light, my salvation. I pray that in your, your precious name, amen.